Oh yes, this is the Hardcore Marketing Show. I'm Casey Cheshire, your host for this epic journey. Today's show is sponsored by Ringmaster on a mission to launch B2B podcasts that create relationships, generate revenue, and drive growth. Ringmasterlive.com. Bam. Train has left the station. I'm really excited to introduce today's guest. We uh, have had these busy schedules and just lining things up to be able to have a conversation like this today. Such an experienced marketer. I can't wait to learn from him. Well, who is he, Casey? Who is he? Tell us, tell us. All right. Seasoned veteran marketing executive, leader and thought leader, a visionary at the intersection of what? D2C and B2B, also an athlete, an Ironman, loves rockets. Who is this guy? CMO and SVP of e-commerce at Purdue Farms, David Zucker. Welcome to the show, sir. Thanks a lot. That's hell of an introduction. I, mean, I have a lot to live up to. Well, you know what you can do? You can just clip that and make that your wake up when you go to do those early morning Ironman swims. You got it. I'll make it the ringtone. Yeah, the, exactly. Exactly. So, all right, we're here to smash a myth. I'm going to pass you this thing, but I know since you're an Ironman, you can handle it. So it's heavy though. <clears throat> okay. Go ahead. Grab it. Thor's hammer. You want to reach out? You got it? Oh, okay. There you go. Okay, great. Take Thor's hammer and smash for me some kind of marketing myth, bogus strategy, misconception. Set the record straight once and for all. Yeah, I think the, you know, it's pretty basic. Actually, I think that um, the myth would be that B2B marketing can't be done with the traditional direct-to-consumer techniques. Yeah, it's a separation, like there's a wall in between them, right? Tell me more. Well, what is it about it? that? May, where does this come from? Why do we tend to think that they can't overlap? Yeah, I think the reason that it's wrong is that you know, when you're marketing in B2B, you're not really marketing to a business. You're marketing to a person in a business. And if we communicate to them with the disciplines developed through consumer marketing, I think we'd be, we can be more successful. Um, you know, specifically as an example, like, you know, there's a, a D2C marketing technique, you know, we call it segmentation. It's developed through modeling, different kinds of content segmentation, and really creating messaging and um, promotions by segment is a very traditional consumer marketing approach that I see a little bit in um, B2B. I just don't see it a lot. Sometimes I've seen the, the overlap in the wrong way where we treat, we treat a business deal like a consumer deal in the wrong way. So it's almost like we, we can borrow the wrong thing in the B2B world, but there's so much that we can borrow that's the right thing to do. What, what is it about? Have, has D2C just figured out segmentation and, and B2B's lagging or what's the difference? Yeah, I think the biggest thing, honestly, is the data. So typically what's very um, evident and available in consumer marketing is there's a lot of data. There are vendors, there's public information at the consumer level that's just not available at the B2B level. You know, there's trying to find who the right decision maker is in the organization, what position they have. That's really, that's just much harder. And so, you know, once you find the person, I think it's a lot easier, but you, you at least you know who you're talking to. But again, all of the detail that you would have in a consumer marketing approach to be able to really fine tune a message for that individual, you just don't have in 
in, in a B2B environment. And I feel like not having it is just leaving the deals on the table. We're just, we're, we're missing it. And there, there's so much revenue out there to go, just go get as a marketer. Where, where do we start? If we want to make this transition and stop missing out on all the con great consumer marketing activities and behaviors as a marketer in the B2B sense, where should we start? How do we, where do you want us to transition to? So I would say, you know, one of the ways, and I'm seeing this a little bit now where B2B marketers that are trying to contact me are, are using social media. So once they found or they're identifying who the decision maker is that they're trying to, they're trying to contact, they're, they're going through the social media um, uh, technology to find out who this person is and try and create a conversation with that person. And so here's, here's an example that I think so that I see and maybe a way to improve upon it. So, you know, like you said, so I'm, I'm a triathlete. I'm really interested in fishing. You might see that on my social media. And so the message that I get from potential business partners would be, you know, hey, David, I do triathlons too. I'd love to talk to you about that. You know, some, something, you know, here's an Amazon gift card or 50 bucks. If, you, if we set up a call, I think the, the you know, the, the approach to build on that would be if I'm interested in fishing, instead of just giving me his Amazon gift card, maybe talk to me about, you know, a gift card to the Bass Pro Shop. Really try and just like one more rep, one more click that's closer to me as an individual. That's one thing. The other thing, I, so, so that's an approach that I see and I think that, that that could be, that could work. I think the area, you just have to be careful that you know, because you're using social media to get some information on me, I know that by the way that you're contacting me and some of that's a little cringy. And so I think we've got to be careful, right? I mean, it's just, it's the balance that we're going to have to walk, but um, you, you want to try and find a way to create that authentic kind of connection to the person and be authentically curious without kind of crossing a line. And Look, it's just hard in B2B because, you know, you are, it's, you know, different than B2C is I'm not really talking to an individual the way I'm doing it in B2B. There really is, a, there's going to be a conversation probably at some point, right? We're going to get on a phone. You're going to come visit me. And if now you're looking into my background or you're looking at my social media, that's, that's a little, it's a little odd. And so I think, but there is. There is that balance, I think, that we can walk as B2B marketers or as, as thinking about B2B marketing in a way that uses the information in a way that's not cringy, but gets across the fact that you really are interested in kind of striking up a conversation. Yeah. You know, it, as you mentioned, uh, how, it's a great power, great responsibility. I, I, my, uh, my son, John, would you know, say to me, like, Dad, that's so cringe, right? <laughs> like, what, what are we doing here? And yeah, we, we want to use that to build a relationship, but not, where's that line though? Is it, is, it a, is it a fuzzy gray? It's hard to really figure out, which is why people mess it up so much. Yeah, I think, every, you know, the worst part about it is, is that everybody's, I think everybody's a little different. That's one thing. I also think that we're also in an environment right now where I think everything is just, you kind of just need to be careful you know, and just be, just be sensitive to it. And so, um, you know, I wish I had the answer. I would tell you that, you know, it, it could be something that a forum 
of B2B marketers talk about and, you know, see what has worked and get the data that way, as opposed to me as an individual B2B marketer trying to throw a bunch of things against the wall and burning the contacts that way. Like that's the worst thing you want to do, right? You don't want to burn the contacts trying to figure things out. And so, you know, you want to be safer than sorry, but, um, yeah, I think that me, you know, maybe there's something around B2B marketers who have used direct to consumer approaches, having conversations about what's working and not working um, as a way to maybe learn quicker. Makes total sense. And the idea of that extra click, here's a rent. Hey, I like this interest too. Here's a gift card. It's almost like, do you really, or is that just a field substitution in an email you know, automation where you just dropped in interest, you know, to triathlon, but to take, but you know, to a generic Amazon gift card, uh, it's like, I, I'm getting the sense I'm in your funnel. It doesn't feel nice to be in, in this machinery where I'm treated as like a prospect number, but just that extra step to say, here's Bass Pro Shop, you know? Yeah. One of the things that I found actually that really worked. So, you know, going at this from a, a kind of on a personal perspective is one yeah. way. And like we said, like that might be a little cringy. There might be some real opportunities there. You know, another way to go at it is um, it can still be personal, but it, but I found this actually when people have contacted me, I think it actually works really well is based on the region as a segment. So, for example, some of my early jobs and I grew up in kind of the New York area. And so one of the, I still remember this, is that one of the um, uh, kind of opening conversations and kind of gifts that I was given um, through one of these contacts was food from New York City. Wow. And so it's so like, you know, so if you grew up in Chicago, sending, you know, a Chicago hot dog kit, <laughs> right? So it's, so it's not, it's a little, it's personal it's something that you can relate to as, as an individual. It connects me with you as the B2B marketer. That is absolutely a direct-to-consumer technique in terms of targeting and relating it to something as an individual. But it's not so personal that you're like, you know that I have two kids and I'm divorced and, you know, whatever's going on in my social media account that I really, like, I don't want to talk to you about that if you're selling <laughs> like a piece of software or you've got some, you know, marketing opportunity for me. And so finding ways that might be personal, but a, maybe a little bit kind of less cringy. So the region is one thing. Um, the other thing is actually, you know, the tenure in the job. So, you know, you can check from my LinkedIn for sure, me personally, how long I've been at Purdue or how long I've been in marketing. And maybe there is an approach there as someone that who has been at this level in an organization of this size for this period of time. Like, what are the things that I'm thinking about and, and really trying to connect with me that way? That I think is, again, and I do see some of these, these kind of conversations happening. But I would tell you, here's one of the things I would tell you that's not, that doesn't work that I see, I probably see, and I probably get approached 20 times a day, no kidding, from emails. And the first thing I do is block them is the first thing they do is they ask me, you know, they, they tell me that they've got a, basically a new mousetrap that they think can work. And the second thing is, is they ask me, you know, what are the things that I'm thinking about? What are the things that are kind of on my mind? 
It's like, I, you know, what I need to know is, is why are you contacting me and why do you think that I should be talking to you? And so I think, again, starting the conversation with something that makes sense from a personal connection that you actually have been, I would say, intelligent enough to be able to really tie some of me to an authentic conversation could be really helpful in starting a conversation with someone that's actually, I need to help me with my business. That creativity, I think, is, is, is important. When you mentioned the what are you thinking, it just, it's that like sales discovery and it's like someone may have read in a, in a book that it's good to do discovery and ask questions. But the problem is you're interrupting my day. So I would have hoped you would have already thought about the reason why you're doing, hey, are you in this situation? You're exactly. experiencing this, right? Because other companies like, you know, in situation R2, if you are, well, you know, such and such, but not just, hey, how's it going? What's up? What's new? What's your sign? <laughs> yeah, tell me what your problems are because I think yeah. I mean, you make a really good point. Like, I think if you started the conversation with, I'm sure you're, you have, this is what's keeping you up at night. If you said to me something that it was like, yeah, that's probably, on my, it might not be the thing, but it's probably one of my top five is like, yeah. okay, this person really does understand the challenge that I'm, that, that's probably in my, my working day as opposed to, I got a mousetrap, tell me what you're thinking about and I'm going to see if I can fit my product into what your problems are. Because I'll tell you, even when I do end up talking to people, the first question they ask is like, you know, tell us what's going on. Tell us what the things are that are really important to you. And I'm like, honestly, I'm not going to do that. You tell me about your product and why you think I should be talking to you. And I'll be really honest with you and tell you like, I don't think it's going to work. I don't think I need that. And then I'm not wasting, I'm not wasting anybody's time. You're not wasting my time. And it's very clear. And I think that if we had more authentic conversations like that, I think I personally would be much more likely to take you know, calls and have conversations with people if, you know, I really felt it was an authentic, we were both being authentic about it. It takes so much courage to put it out there. Here's the use case that I help with, you know, uh, one, to even know what the hell you help out with, but then two, to just state it for the world, they're, thereby eliminating maybe the other ones that you didn't mention, but just put it out there. Here, here's what I address. Is that what you're, and if you did your right research, if you know who you're talking to, then you're going to potentially get that at bat. Uh, yeah, I don't see it. You know, it's interesting you say that. I actually, yeah. I don't see it any different when I talk to a, a potential partner than when I'm interviewing somebody for a job. Mm. If I get somebody coming in for a job and I ask them a couple of questions, but they clearly haven't done their background research, they can't talk to me about the things that are going on in our company or our industry it's going to be a short interview. Like come in prepared. And if you come in prepared, the, what I get out of that is that you really do care about what I care about. Like it'll try to make me feel that way. And, and then, you know, I think it can be a really productive conversation and maybe it doesn't end up in a sale for you, but right now, but wow, I really get the sense that this person, their approach and maybe their solution could mean something down the line. The other thing, and this, I see this a lot, you know, sales folks, they move around. So if you move from one company to another company, if the first company you were at 
that solution didn't work for me, but I really connected with you as a salesperson. When you move to a different company, I'm going to be much more likely to take the call because I had a really good relationship with you or connection with you from the first company. Be like, all right, you know, I'll give you, you know, I know it's going to be a good conversation. And you, you've already built up the report and no, they're not going to just going to waste your time, but they, they've connected the use case to your situation and they, they think it might help. Yeah, right? exactly. Versus the generic. It is that, that classic segmentation challenge. Maybe you can help us you know, illuminate this or you have the courage to do it of not trying to sell everything to everyone. And yeah. then can I put a parenthesis and say, when there's something as important and ubiquitous as chicken and other things, how, how do you do or do you sell to everyone? Or is there, a, how do you target when you think that maybe you could help everyone? So chicken's a branded commodity. So we, yeah. you know, so we kind of, we think that we can be sold to everybody, but we actually don't. Everybody is not Purdue's customer. Wow. So the one diff, the biggest differentiation between Purdue and actually this came up with one of our um, biggest competitors recently is that all of the chicken that Purdue sells is no antibiotics ever. We never use antibiotics in the growth of our, of any of our animals. And that's really important. And it's about 30% of the category that buys chicken that's, that's no antibiotics ever or NAE for short. 60% of the market is we call conventional chicken. And then, you know, the other kind of five to 10% is organic. And so we, while we could sell to everybody, the message that we have out there is very much around a more premium product. And so it's not going to either resonate with, a, with all consumers all the time. Right. There is a segment of consumers that will buy an NAE product all the time. And then there's, then there's consumers that buy it some of the time. So that's one way overall about chicken communication. But in terms of segmenting and using, for example, some of the techniques that we're talking about and what we're doing is that, you know, it's an area that, you know, we're not a direct-to-consumer company. We sell our products to retailers like Walmart and Kroger and Publix and Target, and they're the ones that talk to the consumer more directly than we do, Though, even though we do a great deal of kind of branded advertising. And so what we have to do is help them connect with the challenges that consumers face and then provide content that helps them sell on their platforms. And so we have to get better at that. And frankly, not only are we not good at it, no one in this category is good at it. And kind of most CPG companies aren't good at it. And the example I would give you is that, you know, you look at, um, you know, a chicken breast, marketing a chicken breast to everybody the same way, whether it's NAE or conventional, is a pretty, I would say easy. It's one message and you kind of spray it all over the place as opposed to, you know, a couple that is an empty nester is going to use a chicken breast differently than a 35-year-old mom who has three kids that are, that are, that are at home and she's dealing with, a, you know, she's a professional woman and, you know, her husband's, her husband's professional as well and they're busy and they've got, you know, they've got after school things they have to deal with. Talking about one product differently to those segments is something that we've got to get better at and providing that content to our customers so they can 
communicate with their consumers. And what that shows is, is that Purdue is relevant to you as a consumer because we understand the challenge that you have and our product will fit into your life, whether you're an empty nester or whether you're kind of a busy family with a lot of stuff going on. It's amazing. Uh, I'm the little little uh, emoji with the head exploding, right? Where at, at the surface level, you think, oh, chicken, right? But no, no, you, you, yeah, there's these categories. And, and I hear you on educating because I didn't know about the NAE. I'm probably in that category and I didn't even realize it. Um, but maybe that's okay. Maybe I don't need to know what category I'm in, but I need to, you know, be hearing, but it'd be great to know that there is a category. Cause I'm not, I don't know if I'm going to go organic, but I definitely understand what happens when you go 60%. I, when you go that other, uh, the conventional, right? I understand, right. you know, and if I can, I want to choose to do that other thing. Right. You know, one of the things that just happened actually in, um, in the chicken category is that, you know, our largest competitor just announced that they are now going back to using antibiotics in their chicken. And the reason they're doing it is that they've said clearly, I mean, they've said it openly into the public, is that they're going back to doing it because it literally is more profitable to them and it allows them to better predict supply. The difference is, is that we have figured out how to produce chicken profitably and consistently not having to use antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons is, is that we produce, we grow our animals in an environment where they don't ever need antibiotics. And so we have to be better at telling that story. So, you know, as a consumer, the difference between Purdue chicken is that it's grown in an environment that is less stress, that creates a better husbandry environment where the chickens can be chickens and grown with and using feed that is best suited for their growth and not using antibiotics to cover up, you know, production practices that require yeah. the use of antibiotics all the time because it's in their feed all the time, whether the animals need it or not. And the really, you know, the consumer implication of, 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 of having antibiotics in the feed that's fed to chickens is, you know, and this is a, it's a very complicated thing to get into. So we don't need to get into it here, but it has to do with the fact that those antibiotics, because they're in all these animals, end up creating um, issues with bacteria and the bacteria ends up being resistant to those, right. to, to those, um, uh, antibiotics. And so if those, if those back, if that bacteria ever ends up getting to a human, which it does jump species, the back, the antibiotics that are now resistant in that bacteria won't work. And so you think about this at scale, that's actually the really big issue is that we're creating these kind of bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics because we're using them in kind of animal production you know, specifically chicken. And it's just, it's just a challenge um, to be able to do animal production where you don't need antibiotics. And so we have figured that out and our biggest competitor just couldn't. And so they've, they're going back to using it. And the interesting thing is that Tyson has about a 50% market share in the prepared chicken space. So think chicken nuggets. Yeah, That's yeah. what they own, right? And so 
those chicken nuggets are being fed to children before, you know, the animals that were being produced for their product didn't have antibiotics, didn't, they weren't fed feed that had antibiotics in them. Now they are. And so, you know, do you as a consumer understand that? Are you okay with that? Is it clear to you that they've made that change? And what are you going to do about it? And so we know that there are a significant number of consumers that don't want that. And so from a segmentation standpoint, back to the original part of our conversation, we now need to target those consumers that we believe are Tyson customers that really want an NAE product and get them to come over and buy a Purdue product. Such an important topic to, to educate people on. It reminds me because I don't, I don't even need, I don't even know to think about it or, or I've, I've heard things in my friends and community, but man, it would be great if I knew that. Reminds me of that old Super, not too old Super Bowl commercial with, I think it, it was beer. They were infighting with each other. Uh, and it was, you know, do you guys have the latest shipment of fructose corn syrup to put right. in the beer, right? And it's like, no, go ask the other guys. They have it too. And everyone's like, no kidding. They use th the stuff that we've been trying to avoid. They use that in the beer. And, and that's not, and that example pales in comparison to the idea of antibiotics and like resistant bacteria. That's crazy. So, but just in a small way, now knowing, oh, do I really want my daily dose of fructose corn syrup in this beverage? Maybe I'll pick something a little bit more local or, or, or better, you know, prepared. Same thing here, but even more yeah. so. Like, let me make that choice to just, you know, avoid that, especially with kids. You know, I've got two kids, so I, you know, I, I don't want to set that situation. Yeah, it's, there are real, you know, there is environmental concerns because these animals excrete these antibiotics. And so it gets into the soil. It gets into the groundwater. The groundwater ends up going into the rivers and estuaries that, you know, that are, um, that we're swimming in. And that affects fish. And so it's not trivial. I mean, there are real big implications to this. I mean, I think your point is it's, it's, it's a really great one about communicating to consumers. This is a hard conversation to have with a consumer. It's a long conversation. It's a complicated conversation. And when we say educating a consumer, that's not going to happen. It's just, it's so we as a company, and we've been doing this, we started this 20 years ago. We're the ones you know, the Purdue family is the one that started the move into not using antibiotics. And so we started this 20 years ago. It's like, you know, it's still not well understood. And so there's, it's going to take a long time and it's going to take, um, you know, it's going to take a lot of education, but, you know, it's just, it's not going to, we're not going to cure it through a 30 second television spot. That's for sure. Right. Now it's not an instant cure, but I, man, I, I'm excited for it. I, I can definitely see some some campaigns going around, especially if competitors <laughs> are, are giving in to band-aids over just exactly. doing it the right way. I mean, man, what, a what, I don't know if you go on the offensive, like a Wendy's brand, but uh, th there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, For sure. Um, really exciting to think about. So talk to me about, oh, actually real quick question. We can always bleep this out, but are there any, are there any Purdue chicken nuggets out there that we can... <laughs> Oh, sure. So yeah. we've got a lot of chicken nuggets. We've got chicken okay. nuggets. We have dino nuggets. Um, oh, cool. We've okay. got, uh, we have a lot of products that uh, compete against, you know, our obviously our major competitors, but they compete in this space of prepared, um, 
uh, really kind of healthy, you know, more healthy products to ones that are more convenient. Um, yeah. And, you know, we're primarily an East Coast fresh chicken company, but our prepared okay. products do have distribution um, all over the United States. Oh, cool. Super cool. That, just a little bit of an aside, because I'm thinking, okay, what well, next time my kids want some nuggets, I want to make sure I, uh, you know, ch choose the right situation in there. Not that this is an ad for Purdue Chicken, but well, it's important. So, you know. Ours are no antibiotics ever. Yeah. That's a big deal. And so. NAE. NAE. Cool. So, relating to this, you mentioned like, hey, we, we're going the premium route. Talk to me about the kind of considerations that go into establishing yourself in the marketplace or, or, or letting everyone else know where you are in the marketplace and then how you position yourself as a premium brand, you know, the, the pros and cons and then the sort of the, the challenges you have with that. So the way that we think about differentiating Purdue specifically in this category is the fact that we do a lot of things in our husbandry practices that consumers don't truly understand how it affects the chickens that end up being on their dinner plates. And so what we're doing a better job of now is telling them more about that. So for example, we're the largest producer of organic chicken in the country. Whether it's branded or not branded, there's a really good chance that the chicken that you're eating came from a Purdue facility. There's a lot of things that we do around animal welfare and animal care. So we have, we have a animal care summit he, you know, once a year, we've been doing it for eight years that we invite all of our customers to that also have some of the animal welfare groups come to them because, you know, they have a real perspective on the right way to treat animals. And so getting those messages to consumers is a big part of what we're trying to do to reinforce how Purdue is different and why this is a company that you as a consumer would really want to associate with is that we are, you know, different than our competitors who have come right out and said the reason they're switching back to using antibiotics is strictly for profit. Right. We are a company that is family owned and the Purdue family is focused on producing products that they would feed their children and grandchildren. And while they clearly want to make a profit, we want to do it in a really ethical way. And yeah. so we are doing better at getting that message out. Yeah, excited for you. That's a, that's a cool place to be. Talk to me about what the future holds. What, what's coming around the corner? What are you excited to see, whether it's marketing, marketing, the marketing you're, you're planning or you're looking to do, or just the way you see the market changing? What, what's coming around the future that we can't quite sure. see yet So you're excited about? Sure. So... There's probably two things. Um, the first one is around convenience. You know, I think a lot of this got amplified through the experience we all had with COVID, but consumers yeah. are really looking for easy now more than ever. Um, parents, families, people that work, they're busy. And so they want the ability to cook at home in a way that, doesn't require cooking from scratch all the time. And that is, so it's not only easy, but that it tastes good. And the things they're comparing it to are the restaurant experiences. 
And so mm-hmm. it's got to be easy, but the level of quality and taste and texture that they're comparing us to is the restaurant industry. And so that's one thing that we're very focused on as an organization is providing that. So that's one thing. The other thing I think, and I feel really strongly about this, is that especially a company like Purdue, I think one of the things that we can do differently in that it's a trend that I believe is, I believe I see it and I know it's happening, is this idea of content generation. And so, you know, people talk about AI and using AI to develop content. You know, the, you know if you go into Walmart or Kroger or Publix and they start talking to you about growing chickens, I think p- most people can see through the fact that those companies are not the farmers. They're not the ones that are growing chickens. Purdue is. And so the trend that we're seeing and where we're really trying to develop some expertise and partnerships with our customers is around developing that authentic content that only Purdue can develop and sharing it with our customers so they can share it with their consumers. So when the consumer sees, like on a product detail page of a website, here's this chicken and here's the farmer that grew it or here's the husbandry practice that this chicken was raised with. And you're hearing from the, the, the company that actually grew the chicken or the farmer that actually grew the chicken. That's really important. So that's, and I think that the other thing that happens within the content is this idea around transparency. Is really, you know, consumers are really looking for food providences. They want to know where things come from. And this, again, is something that Purdue actually has, it's very differentiated in this category, is that we're completely vertically integrated. We have the ability to tell you where and when the seed was planted with the farmer that grew the feed that we feed our chickens all the way through the process of growing the chicken when it's harvested as it makes its way into the retail environment. We have full chain of custody over that entire process, 100%. A hundred percent. No one knows that. And that's so, crazy data. You had mentioned like it's all about the data. That's that's crazy data. Crazy data, but you know, again, making that digestible for a consumer, giving that to our customers is content that we, as the source of that content, have to figure out a way to get it down into you know a thirty-second, one-minute kind of video that you, as a consumer, would want to see or want to hear when you're on a product detail page in the conversion process and not take you off kind of that digital experience. And the in-store experience is a little different. I mean, most consumers still shop in, in, in retail, in, in the store. And so figuring out how to get that message in store. But, but I think con- you know, specifically around your question, I see convenience is a really big trend. And I see you know, authentic content um, absolutely being something that consumers are caring more about, especially with the advent of AI. Oh man, what what a those are some fantastic convenience and authentic content and the the human side of the product, right? Being able to chat with you, I tell you, I learn about different areas. In fact, but you get to see the people behind the brand, the family brand, that kind of thing. Um, and you're right; they need people need to know that it isn't really about buying an island in the Caribbean, right? It's like, hey, it's a family business. We're doing doing well. We want to make sure we can feed our kids chicken and not get them sick. You know, uh, exactly. That's it, but getting that story out. It's got to be interesting, right? 
But the idea of the vertically, I mean, there's some really cool stories you can tell with that. The little seed and then following it all the way through to to the the, the table and someone's eating. That, there's some really cool areas there. And as long as you stay authentic, right, and stay transparent, I could see people really eating that up. Yeah, and I think, yeah, exactly. And, you know, what our current, the current advertising that we have in the market right now, what it does a really good job is it, is it relates the things that we do as, a, as an organization to the fact that we have great tasting chicken. Yeah. And that's all. So ultimately what consumers care about when they go to buy chicken, you know, the category, one of the most important category drivers is the fact that it's got to taste good. Even for raw chicken, taste is still really important because they're translating that into a product that they're making. It's definitely clear on the prepared side. And so taste is still critical. And what we have to do is kind of under, make the message clear to the consumers that what we do at Purdue is ultimately around creating a product that you as a consumer are going to be really satisfied with. And if satisfaction for you is around convenience, then we need to do that. If it's around taste, then we need to do that as well. Yeah. Wrap it up with a with an interesting bow and and telling the story of the brand. Exactly. Who are you? <laughs> How do you know all these things? They're like, take me back in time. You know, little little David. Did he know he was going to be, you know, leading marketing for a amazing giant company and you know, take me back in time. What were you thinking? Absolutely not. So little David was not going to be a marketing person. Actually, little David grew up um, really actually very interested in the environment. So oh, cool. I was very interested and focused on animals as I was in high school. My bachelor's degree is in biology. My master's and doctorate are in environmental economics. And so I was very focused kind of through school and younger in life on Things that, are, while they're very kind of, you know, in vogue now, um, were, I was really interested in then. Um, while I was in my PhD program, I had twins a year before I graduated with my PhD and I needed money to pay for <laughs> diapers and for formula. And so while I really had some really interesting opportunities to go be kind of in academia, I took the math of my economics training and really applied that in the marketing world. And so I started as a statistician at a company that built models to target consumers with direct mail and kind of learned the, the direct mail business literally from the bottoms up on the, on the direct to consumer side through the analytics. And then as I progressed through my career, kind of taking on more senior roles, it really was around this kind of CRM consumer relationship or customer relationship marketing that is very kind of quantitative and math focused. Hmm. And then as digital marketing became a higher percentage of the marketing that people were thinking about, having a math background is, was, was very applicable to that. And now, you know, as with the mix of all these different marketing techniques that we can use, when you think about a marketing mix model at a large company like ours, or if you're a direct-to-consumer marketer, and you're really focused on the math of every model and every segment you're targeting, the math is really important. And so the strength for me was on the math side and where what I had to learn was really more of the messaging and, and visual creative side, which you're like, well, that's what marketing is. But what I would tell you is that for me, the, the economics training 
was really, really impactful for um, unpacking how to look at a problem and decomposing it. And whether there was visual components or, or um, textual components to it, how would those, you know, work? How could we approve upon them? And so the whole test and control world was something that I kind of, I use that really to learn how to be a better visual and textual marketer and, and kind of just basically grew up in the marketing um, environment that way. It seems like if you're going to approach it, if you, could, if you could come at marketing from one of the two directions, having that solid understanding of economics and math and statistical significance and those type of elements, and then adding in the design, it would be easier to add in the design because you can just test it and you can learn what the right answer is versus having your preconceived notions about design and whatnot and then finding out that, you know, uh, oh, that actually isn't. One example is, you know, like what color button do you put on a form? Well, For sure. it's, not the, it's not the prettiest button. Actually, the, you know, the statistical um, the solution to this problem, it's been solved. I used to test this as a marketer and, and I had someone on the show tell me it's just a color not in the palette. It's all right. you got to do. Something out of the palette. But that's not good design sense. But from a statistical or economical standpoint, it is the right decision to make. So, yeah, I would tell you, it's interesting you say that. So, um I've got two perspectives on that. Um, yeah. One perspective is I 100% agree with you. I think that using the test and control environment in a creative approach is really, it's, it's, it's a sound way of doing business. And I think that it's important that as a marketer, working with a creative team and helping them understand why that's valuable is really critical. So that's one, that's one I think, approach. The other approach is the marketing person or the creative person really doesn't care what you say at all. And so the example I have there is actually, so I worked at Martha Stewart for almost three years. And I will tell you that she is by far one of the smartest mark, consumer marketers I've ever worked with. Wow. She has a design sense and the team that she put around her have one of the best design senses I've ever, ever um, been kind of exposed to. Um, and they just kind of know what works. It sounds kind of odd, but, you know, they didn't do, for example, at Martha Stewart, they never did cover testing on the magazines until I got there and we started doing it. And it was a challenging conversation specifically with Martha around doing that. It was interesting, though, that when the process that she would go through, for example, is that the creative team would bring to her three potential magazine covers and she would end up choosing the one that she liked all three of them were great and the one that she chose was amazing however the two big channels that magazines sell through still to this day is you either subscribe to them and get them delivered to your house or you buy them at the newsstand at the airport oh at the and airport at, not even the grocery store or, or the grocery store oh, okay. or the grocery oh, like store. a news like a you, you see half of a thing and it's in a in a yeah Totally. Exactly. So at a newsstand, right? So, so right. your example is probably a little better. When I send the magazine to your house, you, you're going to get the magazine cover that I have there, that I put on it. Yeah. But the magazine cover has a very strong, is a very strong driver for what you're going to take off the, off the newsstand. And the difference there is financial. And so one of the things we were able to show through this process of testing and had the conversations with Martha is that while all three of those covers she would have been satisfied with, 
option A, the consumer was more likely to pull off of the newsstand. And that has real financial implications to the business. And she's like, okay, I get that. That And so converting it into something that whether the creative or the the, the marketing person, whoever the business person is that you're talking to and speaking in a language that ultimately they care about. I mean, if you're in a for-profit business, you're out for profit. And so, you know, but like Purdue, figuring out what the guidelines are that you want to make that under, that's important. And so testing creative is really, is really no different. Do you remember any secret ninja tricks to making a cover that ripped it off the shelf? Was it? What was it? <laughs> so I would tell you that the, 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 the lines that they would write on the, on the covers, those were things that would get you to take the, the magazine off the, off the newsstand. For example, I'll never forget this. It's like on almost, I think it's like 10 out of the 12 issues of most men's health magazines, there's uh, one of those lines is about how to get your abs, how to get abs, because that's what guys care about. Like, I want to make my stomach flatter. So what's going to pull it, you know, 10 ways to get your stomach flatter. That's what's going to get you to take that magazine off the shelf. For women, it's about how to get their thighs smaller. That's what they care about. And so those lines, that there really is a formula to it and that the really successful magazine companies and actually the direct mail companies would do this with cover testing of the direct mail covers that you would get still to this day. I mean, it's a very strong, uh, the, you know, the mail order catalog business is still unbelievably strong. Okay. So as B2B marketers think about, I mean, I actually remember this at Dell, um, we did some work on this there, is that the cover of a B2B catalog is super critical back to kind of those direct to consumer techniques, testing and creating different covers of a catalog that goes to the B2B audience based on the different segments of who's receiving it is really important because the most important thing in a catalog is the cover because I can't remember the exact number, but like 70% of the people who get a catalog who don't like what's on the cover, throw it out. Mm. And so if you can't even get them to open it, they don't, it doesn't matter what message you have on it on the inside. You can't. And so really thinking again, back to the conversation we we're having earlier, figuring out who your segments are, creating the content specifically for them, testing that is super important. And that really is more of a direct-to-consumer approach. I haven't seen that very much in the B2B world. It was something actually that we did do at Dell and found huge benefits in it. Man, just a just a little bit of testing can go a long way. I I was actually impressed with Martha Stewart in, in your conversation because you told her about it and she was like, "Cool, let's do it." <laughs> well, I would say it was. I'm I'm paraphrasing a little. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it was. It eventually got there, but I mean, it was. I mean, she look. She like I said, she is by far the smartest consumer marketing person I've ever worked. With. I learned so much at that company. Wow! Shout out! Shout out to Martha Stewart. For sure. For sure. Um, and I think she wrapped it with Snoop Dogg. So anyone that can pull that off. Uh, Seriously. I mean, but look at know? her, look at how she's developed her brand as, and remain relevant. You know, yeah. she, I, I don't know how old she is, but she is still very relevant to young people, middle-aged people, boomers, the whole thing. And so I give her a lot of credit. 
Well, I want to shift a little bit here and, and ask you a more of a hypothetical question. Because, see, I may or may not have a time machine up here in Nashua, New Hampshire. So you come visit, do a little event in Boston or something. Come on up, get some beer, lobster, use the time machine. And, uh, and it's a special kind. Of, it's in the, you know, the backyard covered in a tarp. Nice. Special kind of time machine. And, it, and you go back in time and you can visit yourself four days after graduating with your undergrad degree. And you get to go visit that Dave, that, that guy. Um, now it's a couple of days after graduation. So you're, you're back with us. Uh, what do you tell yourself? What kind of advice, what kind of things would you tell yourself? Interesting question. Um, I think there's two things I would tell myself. The first one, um, by far is, um, develop emotional intelligence. I would tell you that it, it was hard, really hard for me to break the barrier between you know, IQ to EQ. I think one of the most effective things I would have been able to learn as just a mature, and I say mature is like old, not mature, mature. <laughs> because I, don't th I, don't, I still think of myself as a kid, is that <laughs> um, is just of how important emotional intelligence is to being an effective leader. Not only how to manage yourself in a meeting with your peers, but how you manage people that you're managing, how to manage your manager. The more emotional intelligence you, you have, I think, the, I mean, that clearly would be the thing I would be like just banging that into my head. So that's one thing. Okay. Um, the second thing I would say, actually, and it's, I would say it's, 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 it's more of a recommendation. And this was something that um, someone told me that I live by now, and I wish I knew it kind of a couple of days after graduating. And there are three leadership qualities that I think really do well. The first one is follow the golden rule. So, you know, just do to other people what you would do to yourself. Um, the second thing is hire better than you. And that's really tough. You got to be really comfortable as a market, as, as just a business person, to be able to put people around you and your teams or be able to recommend a peer that's better at your job than you are. And so I think you go, it goes a long way to developing yourself. And that's, that's the second thing. And I think the third thing is this, it's kind of a weird statement. It's this idea, it's called, the way it was explained to me was this idea called fix your grip. And it's a, it's a golfing analogy where, you know, imagine you're, and I don't golf, but it's still me use neither. this idea. <laughs> Mini golf. I don't, I can't even mini golf. I just don't have the patience <laughs> for it. So the idea is fix your grip. And, and basically it's the idea of putting yourself in, in uncomfortable situations. And so the way the analogy goes is, you know, you go up to the driving range and you go to the pro and the pro puts your hands in certain positions and tells you to swing. And it's a really uncomfortable. And he says, practice that. You come back next week and he's like, okay, a little bit better. Now, now do this with your hands. And you're like, it's now it's uncomfortable again. And you keep doing this and week after week, it keeps making things uncomfortable and uncomfortable. And before you know it, you know, six, eight weeks into this thing, you're driving the ball 200 yards farther than you were driving it before. And so this idea of just constantly putting yourself in uncomfortable situations to get better is something that I wish I knew earlier in my career that I think would have given me not only more opportunities, but I think it would have developed me more just within business um, faster. Love that. Fix your grip. 
I guess the question is, does the grip ever get comfortable? Are you constantly getting a little bit more uncomfortable, you know? For me, I'll be honest. So, you know, if you look at my background, I've changed, not only have I changed jobs, but, you know, I've changed industries. And I, as an economist and as someone who changes industry, I actually think that that's really good because when I join a company in an industry I haven't been in, like Purdue, is a B2B, you know, we are a B2B marketing company. We market to customers. We don't market to consumers. It wasn't an environment that I was in before. I had to come and develop a digital strategy at a company that doesn't market directly to consumers. And so how do I apply what I've done in my past in an organization like this? And then when they asked me to take on the marketing role, how do I pivot and use the experiences that I have in an environment that I haven't spent 30 years as a, as a consumer package, good marketer. And so, um, that's an uncomfortable place to be. You have to rely on people that are around you. I have something to bring to the table. So to other people and trying to marry those things is something that um, I think that's work. So specifically your point, honestly, as soon as I feel like I'm comfortable, I think there's a problem. I think I got to go change something up. Yeah, because if you're comfortable, you're probably not progressing or pushing hard enough, right? So I can totally see that. And also you're you're shaking up industries everywhere you go because you're 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 bringing in you know first principles, but you're you're leaving all the preconceived notions of all the you know the industry knuckleheads who've been there forever uh, are just assumed are the case. And you're like, no, nah, what about this? Yeah, I think it's just you know it's doing things a little different. Being you know yeah. being part of change is difficult. And I think back to that first point about emotional intelligence is you know being comfortable in an environment where you're trying to change things is important to know that it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard for the people that are around you who do things a certain way. It's going to be hard for you because you're going to, you're, it's, you're not the, you know, it's not going to be a friendly environment for a long time, maybe never because you're upsetting the apple cart. And so, you know, I think if you can keep certain things in mind and just understand that, think again, just having a really strong emotional foundation to approach things, I think is something I really wish I knew earlier in my career. Man, it's so good. So good. I can tell you, putting a, putting a face to the name, putting a face to, to not only your name, but Purdue's name. And man, thank you so much for coming on here. Uh, schooling us on, first of all, the, the, the NAE, which I had no idea about, but also just really how to bring in some of that, that counter knowledge into a new industry, the D2C side, the B2B side, just merging the two together. So uh, thank you. Well, thank you. I hope your audience finds it valuable and I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been a lot of fun. Hell yeah. Where can people reach out to you if they want to connect and, and learn more from you? So probably the easiest place is on LinkedIn. That's the, I check it, you know, every other day and that's the best way to do it. Heck yeah. So, all right. If you're listening to this and you learned something and I freaking know you did because I literally have two pages of notes over here, front and back. I've run out, I'm in the margins. I'm drawing pictures. Uh, if you if you learn like I have, then share this with someone else, one person, three people. But honestly, even if you didn't share the episode, but you just took that thought process of potentially not getting the chicken with the, uh, the antibiotics in it, just, you know, and uh, your your kids' kids will thank you later. So uh, get this episode into someone else's hands. With that, David, thank you again, sir, for being on here. Thanks a lot. All right, everyone. This has been a crazy episode, a crazy cool episode of the Hardcore Marketing Show. We will see you all next time.